Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I am featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and the daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I immigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Simbler Miller, the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, TheEdgeOfTheWedge.com. I grew up in the Midwest town of Elgin, Illinois, where I was the only Jewish child in all my classes. The Jewish community of Elgin was not a survivor community. Our parents and grandparents had come at the turn of the 20th century fleeing the czar and other programs. And yet in 1970, only 25 years after the end of World War II, my husband, a US Army officer and I found ourselves stationed in Munich, Germany. And this experience changed our lives forever. Robert Williams, PhD, is a deputy director for international affairs at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, DC, and a United States delegate to the 35 nation International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, for which he has chaired the Committee on Antisemitism and Holocaust Denial, as well as several high priority projects. He's a frequent speaker on genocide, antisemitism, and the Holocaust. Robert, welcome to our show. We're delighted to have you on. Thank you for having me. Robert, what led you to your interest? Is there something in your family background connected to the Holocaust, or did this just find you, or did you find it? A little, a, a little of bo both of the latter. No, nothing directly in my, my immediate family history. I grew up uh, in a different part of kind of the Midwest, kind of the South. I grew up in Kentucky and, you know, was surrounded, not in my immediate family, fortunately, but surrounded by different forms of bias growing up. And when I, as I got older uh, and began thinking about these issues, I, I realized that there was a, a need that I had to begin to try to address those in a very real way. I fortunately had some foreign languages and, and certain academic expertise that lent itself to doing my graduate work in history with a political science bent, but it was really all, well, driven in part by a, a need to try to understand and, and fight anti-Semitism uh, because it just never made sense to me. So uh, short answer is no, nothing in my immediate family history, uh, but B, I think it's, uh, well, I should say it's also due to having good parents who who taught me to speak out when, when confronted with hatred. So I, I, it's kind of a combination of factors. What, what are your primary responsibilities in the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum? So I'm in the uh, international affairs wing of the museum. It used to be in our academic division, um, but the museum itself is part of the U.S. government. We are an independent federal establishment uh, created by uh, uh, an act of Congress. And as a result, the museum has a mission as, uh, to not only ensure appropriate and honest engagement with the Holocaust and the various legacies that have followed here in the United States, but also abroad. So in that international role on behalf of the museum, I, I represent both the museum and the U.S. government to a few international bodies, like the aforementioned International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, 
Uh, I work in an advisory capacity to a number of these international organizations, as well as to a few governments. And we work cooperatively to shape policies and approaches to both well, a number of ends, one being uh, making certain that governments have Holocaust-focused institutions that can keep alive the history and legacies of the Holocaust. Two, that there are government policies and government support in place to ensure adequate and appropriate teaching, uh, teaching on the Holocaust, research on the Holocaust, and commemoration or memory of the Holocaust. This is a growing challenge uh, on the global scale. Uh, and third, to create policies that can allow societies to not only reflect on the Holocaust in ways that can um, <laughs> keep alive memory of, of the Shoah, but also to improve society, to deal with issues like anti-Semitism or anti-Roma racism, other forms of bias that uh, can be seen in the history of the Holocaust for certain, but also in, unfortunately, the world today. So could you explain the role of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, including the non-binding definition, which we do have a link on our YouTube uh, podcast website to the definition. But if you could go more into depth about it, that would be great. Sure. So the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, it's, uh, it probably helps to have some background on the organization. So the organization emerged out of something known as the Stockholm uh, Declaration on the Holocaust of the year 2000 in part an initiative of the then Swedish government uh, to create a, a forum in Stockholm to ensure long-term memory of the Holocaust. That is in many ways the founding document for the IRA. I'm gonna use the shorthand because it's easier. The IRA over the last 22 years has grown considerably into a 35 nation international body uh, that includes many countries in Europe, uh, United States, Canada, uh, in Argentina from this side of the ocean, and now Australia in Oceania. And it brings together diplomats and subject matter experts from all around the world to deal with a whole range of issues related to memory, research, and education on the Holocaust. Um, a few of the products that the IRA has developed over the years have found resonance in the policymaking world in ways that can improve education on a few of the challenges we face today and or mechanisms for governments to use to address particular challenges that might exist. So for example, you might remember several years ago, whenever you opened a website, you would get a little banner that told you about the general data protection regulation of the European Union. Well, this was a law that the EU passed in order to deal with data privacy concerns, something that we're all really worried about. Um, when the EU wrote this general data protection regulation in draft form, it was written in such a way as to essentially potentially block users from accessing archives, including archives related to the Holocaust. So through the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance and my work at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum, we worked with the European Union to improve the language of that law to ensure that scholars, journalists, genealogists, anyone could access not just archives related to the Holocaust, but the whole range of mass atrocities that have happened in Europe. So the IRA works in that space. And we've also created, you mentioned it earlier, a few working definitions of different challenges we have. 
One of the first working definitions which passed during the Canadian chairmanship nine years ago was a working definition of Holocaust distortion. Then in 2016, under the Romanian chairmanship or presidency of the IRA, a, working a non legally binding working definition of anti Semitism was passed under my predecessor chair, a man named Mark Weitzman. That working definition uh, was passed within the IRA to kind of frame the work of the organization and how to understand and educate on anti-Semitism in a variety of forms. So the definition itself has a core part of the definition that explains what anti-Semitism is as a manifestation of anti-Semitism, something I'll come back to in a moment. And it also includes 11 examples of the various ways that anti-Semitism appears today. Now, these examples were the product of dialogue and agreement between those diplomats and policymakers. So they're a bare minimum of the forms that take place. But it's a what's an educational tool at the end of the day to deal with anti-Semitism as we see it. And as I understand, uh, of course, I've read the, the IRA definition, the working definition, and it also mentions where criticism of Israel, um, uh, for instance, is legitimate and where it becomes anti-Semitic, which is a fine line. Uh, in many cases, and where a lot of anti-Semitism is pinpointed at these days, right? So is, is pinpointed at, at Israel. Um, so that, that's very useful. But um, as I understand, from what I understand, there are many countries who have adopted officially this working definition as a guideline for their own, um, uh, where, uh, for their own work in, in, in um, determining when is something anti-Semitism and when is it not, including the United States, including the EU, including the UN. Uh, is that correct? Yes and no. Um, so there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. First of all, yes, you're right. The IRA definition states quite clearly, you can tell that I was heavily involved with this because I, wrote, I have it memorized, quote, criticism of Israel similar to that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic, quote. Right. So why is that so important? And why are these examples that focus on Israel so important? They're not there to stifle speech about Israel. There's always a legitimate reason to, to criticize any country. And if criticism of Israel were illegal, well, the citizens of, the, of Israel might have a problem with that. So nobody's saying criticism can't, can't be, be there. But what it provides our guidelines for civil critique, which is something that I think is lacking in every sphere, including sometimes uh, when it's directed at Israel. As for the majority of manifestations of anti-Semitism being expressed in an anti-Israel way, I'm not sure that's actually the case. I think it depends on where you're talking about at a particular time, but there are certainly cases of anti-Semitic expression appearing through anti-Israel criticism at times. Um, as for adoption by countries, so the United Nations has not adopted the IRA definition, nor technically speaking, has the whole of the EU. There are recommendations for it to be adopted by the European Commission among IRA member, or sorry, EU member countries. And a good number of those EU member countries have adopted the definition. And so too have two Muslim majority countries, Kosovo and Albania. 
the reasons countries adopt it differ. So you have some countries like Romania or Germany, especially Germany, who have adopted it in ways to train and educate a variety of different audiences, usually government officials, about the different ways that anti-Semitism appears. So in Germany, for example, all civil servants receive some degree of training on the definition, as far as I understand, up to and including, again, it's, it's an anecdote, but I understand even some dairy farmers in Bavaria learn about the definition. In order to have people sensitized to the different ways that anti-Semitism appears. And this is important, and maybe we can talk about this later too, because not a lot of people actually know what anti-Semitism is. You know, prior to the IRA definition, most people would took a, if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck approach to anti-Semitism, I'll know it when I see it. Well, that might be great or appropriate if you've been focused on anti-Semitism for much of your life, or if unfortunately you've been the victim of an anti-Semitic attack. But for the vast majority of the public who have not experienced or witnessed anti-Semitism, they're not quite sure what it is. So it can be staring at you in the face and you may not recognize it. We all have these unconscious biases that we carry with us. The IRA working definition helps surface those. So it's, it's all in how it's used. Yes, and, and it's, so it's educational, if I understand it correctly, and, and not binding, right? Um, Correct. You can, I mean, you can, you can go to court with it, um, but um, um, I think it depends. Well, again, that depends on local context. I think if yeah. it's if it's utilized in some countries where freedom of speech laws are not as open yeah. as they are in the United States, it could be. But it's contextual. I understand. Yeah, I understand. But but wasn't it the 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 special? I think there is a special official at the UN on anti-Semitism. He's from the Maldives originally. Yes. And, and didn't he also recommend for educational purposes to use the IRA defini working definition? Correct. You're, you're speaking of the special rapporteur on religious yes. freedom, Ahmed, Dr. Ahmed Shahid. Yes. yes, that was in his initial set of recommendations. He's been a strong supporter of, of the utilization of this resource. Yeah. Um, and it goes beyond education. You know, and part of, part of the problem that we all face when we are addressing life's challenges is the ability to, I, to define those challenges and then to track them so that we know the scale of the problem. So using a tool like that, uh, that definition can allow governments, whether it's police agencies or, I don't know, justice ministries, to track anti-Semitism in its various forms so that you know how big a problem you have, to know what the trends are with that problem so that you can then design policies or other approaches to counter that, that challenge that you have. So yeah. that's another aspect to the definition that, that we envisioned uh, at the time of its passage. I understand, yeah, thank you. I'd just like to say one thing, that we try and bring it down here to the, the individual person's level. And I'm still thinking about the person that we interviewed last week. Uh, she's Dutch. And so Evelyn has to say her name. But this was the simple act that she did. Someone who was a celebrity posted a video, I think, on TikTok of her young daughter who had bumped her nose and her nose was big. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a Jewish nose. And 
and mm -hmm. and then what was more upsetting to our Dutch guests was that no one even said anything. So this mm -hmm. Dutch guest did something very, I think, clever. She didn't list anything on those long list of comments that would have gotten lost. She reached out privately through a DM mm -hmm. and she explained to the um, celebrity why this was offensive and asked for celebrity to remove it. And the celebrity did. And that's one of the things that Evan and I are so committed to teaching people that you don't have to just accept it. You, you and it only took um, our guest a couple of minutes to write this uh, DM. And, but they needed to recognize it. In other words, she recognized that it was anti-Semitic. Yeah. And other people didn't. So that's why we're hoping your IRA will really trickle down to people understanding what the little things they can do. Oh, that's, and, and, and that is at the end of the day, that's where the salvation will lie is in the actions of individuals. You know, policies can only go so far. Definitions can only go so far. There are, there's, there's some wisdom in what you, a lot of wisdom in what you just said. And it's also kind of part and parcel with how we understand the use, not just of this definition, but all of the IRA definitions of which there are three. Uh, the third deals with anti-Roma racism. Um, they focus on the ways that these challenges are expressed. The IRA definition talks about expressions and manifestations of anti-Semitism. They don't say who an anti-Semite is. They don't even define who's Jewish and they don't impugn a motive behind anti-Semitism. At the end of the day, they're just saying anti-Semitism appears in these different ways. And that provides a learning opportunity. Instead of pointing your finger at somebody and calling them an anti-Semite, which is a very, very strong accusation to make, it's a chance to say, hey, that picture, that statement, whatever, that might be anti-Semitic. Let's discuss why. It gives, it, so that you're not putting up a wall between you and that other individual. You're actually breaking down that wall and engaging in a conversation. The other thing that you stimulated is, is another story that was relayed to me just recently by a, uh, an attorney in South Africa uh, who was arguing a case before the Supreme Court of South Africa on anti-Semitism. And during her arguments, uh, the judge, one of the judges said something along the lines of, well, you know, why is Hitler offensive to Jewish people? Why is the swastika offensive? Right. I made the same face you did, Phyllis, but <laughs> she, the, jur the uh, attorney was smart enough to realize the challenge. It wasn't hate in the mind of the, of the judge. The judge grew up in an apartheid, in apartheid era South Africa, never had the opportunity to learn the history of the Holocaust or learn to be sensitive to Jewish community needs. So it led to a 45 minute back and forth discussion between the attorney and the judge at the end of which the judge realized, oh, that is why it's offensive. This is the history and the context that matters. Because that this judge did not have the chance to learn this history, she was unaware of why things could be offensive. So reaching out, having those conversations, whether they're in a classroom, whether they're in a museum or some other learning environment, that's ultimately gonna be where we can begin to change the tide of the problems that we see before us. And from my own experience, I, I, I totally agree and identify with what you're explaining. Um, there are cases, though, where the anti-Semitism is not driven by ignorance, but is driven by 
ideology and then it doesn't help to to explain your sensitivities or that's right yeah yeah there, you can never you, you won't be able to convert whatever percentage of people let's say five percent of people but some are operating out of ignorance so we should we should you know give people the opportunity to learn if they don't want to learn then there are other approaches we, should, we can take yeah i can um, just say one thing because he mentioned anti-roma and for hmm. many many years anytime anyone says the word jib to me i hmm. correct them nicely i say perhaps you don't know that that comes the word gypsy and is offensive and it's much better to say cheated and uh it's just a little thing i say it nicely i don't like mm -hmm. yell and but it's those little things that people then get in their mind and they don't realize they say that word a lot and then they're actually getting a picture of the roma and the sinti so we all need to be very sensitive but very polite as we educate people i agree uh 100 um, Robert, as, as worldwide, recently there has been a rise in violent anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic incidents. Mm -hmm. anti incidents. Uh, could you share with us why you think the violent anti-Semitism is rising? I, I think it's, well, it's rising concomitant with just rising anti-Semitism in all of its forms. And it doesn't unfortunately matter where you are these days. You know, several years ago, I might have been more inclined to focus on rising anti-Semitism in Europe. But I think what we've seen in the United States, especially if you really want to think about it, at least since the 2014 shooting at the Overland Park, Kansas Jewish Community Center, been a rise in violent and deadly attacks on Jewish communities here in the United States where such violence was relatively rare. There are a number of factors behind rising anti-Semitism and the rise of violence. Um, part of it is the increased radicalization that we see of individuals because they are engaged online. Um, there is a certain degree to which uh, we'll call it Atlantic world society in general. Uh, has become quite susceptible to believing in all manner of conspiracy myth, uh, also known as conspiracy theories, but I, I try to avoid the use of the word theory because that might have some connotation of validity. So these conspiracy myths are all pervasive and there are huge elements of whether you're talking about North American or European populations that buy into these various conspiracy myths. Many have anti-Semitic bases, even when people are not aware of the anti-Semitism that's there. QAnon's the best case in point. A lot of people were not aware of just how anti-Semitic QAnon was when it first emerged online in 2017. Fortunately, now, as we are coming out of the COVID pandemic, people are aware of how suffused that is with anti-Semitism. And that is a conspiracy theory that certainly leads people to violence. The other dominant conspiracy theory of our time that is also quite violent uh, in its rhetoric is, of course, the Great Replacement uh, conspiracy theory, something that we saw most horrifically uh, informing the actions of the individual who shot up the supermarket in Buffalo just recently. Now, although he, was atta he attacked the African-American community, the suspect in that crime in his writings also uh, leveled a lot of hateful rhetoric uh, toward Jews. So anti-Semitism informed his thinking, and it was in part because of his engagement with this great replacement theory. 
Um, the other factor behind rising uh, anti-Semitism and violence is quite honestly, in my opinion, uh, a degree to which we have not adequately engaged with anti-Semitism as something we need to educate against. Uh, there's been a huge amount of investment and it's great investment in secondary education on the Holocaust. And oftentimes policymakers would point to this as the panacea to anti-Semitism. And while it's allowed for more awareness of the Holocaust to grow over the course of the last two to three decades, it's certainly proven insufficient on its own to fighting anti-Semitism. It needs to be complemented by other strategies, including the integration of Jewish history into various national histories, the uh, an integration of, for lack of a better descriptor, the teaching of civics and common respect for other cultures and society, uh, and a whole host of other learning opportunities in order to have an effect. But we've not, we've moved away from teaching those more humanistic style courses to our learners and focused instead on uh, other modules that just don't work when they're on their own. I, there are other factors as well. I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you want me to go, but I think um, it, it's quite clear that, uh, that extremism in all of its forms is a growing problem that's informing violent anti-Semitism. Right. In, in, um, in France, uh, Jewish kids get stabbed in schools often, or, or Jews are attacked in the street or in front of the synagogue. Um, in, in Holland, I've seen the same thing. Yes. Um, um, in my experience in Holland, that wasn't so much from extremism, it was youth. Yeah. Um, in this case, it was, in, in that case, it was mostly Muslim youth of immigrant background that were attacking Jews. Maybe they weren't radicalized, but they, I mean, they, they were not on the list of the secret service to be, you know, uh, observed, but it was, I don't know, it was, it was, Maybe from the internet, maybe from the from the Middle Eastern TV. Um, um, also, there was a big resistance in Amsterdam. One in four schools cannot teach the Holocaust history mm -hmm. because this same group of students will threaten uh, the teacher if they do so. They say it's Israeli propaganda. Uh, Holocaust didn't happen or wasn't that bad. It's used well, as Israeli propaganda. So yeah. I've heard that statistic. I'm not sure how true it is, to be honest with you. I, I have a pretty decent working relationship with the Dutch government. I know that this uh, issue came up recently in a different context, uh, and the, the government of the Netherlands did a good job of, of pushing back against this tendency. Um, but you mentioned France. I, I think France could be a good case in point. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, you know, if you look at police statistics in Europe, um, between setting aside some of the challenges of police statistics on anti-Semitism, because it's surprising the EU found out several years ago that 79.2% of Jews in the EU do not go to the police to report anti-Semitic crimes more often than not because they think it's pointless to do so. But that said, even if you look at police statistics, you see a rise of anti-Semitism over the course of the 10 years between 2010 in 2020, which is the most recent year for which the European Fundamental Rights Agency has statistics. Uh, 
And if you look at that decade, you see something actually kind of surprising. Between 2010 and 2020, anti-Semitism fell in a couple of EU countries, like the Czech Republic and in France. I want to focus on France for a moment because France has had real deadly cases of anti-Semitism, maybe as recently as about a week ago. It's still a little too early to say, but some very deadly cases of anti-Semitism in that country for quite a number of years. But in the wake of some of the largest outbreaks of anti-Semitism, especially the shooting at the Hypercaché kosher supermarket, uh, which happened about seven years ago, the government of France put in place a number of measures to begin dealing with anti-Semitism in the classroom and in general society. Are they perfect? No. But what you've found is that anti-Semitism in France, because of the actions undertaken in the last few years, is actually fallen by about 27% over the course of that 10-year period because the government has gotten involved. That's actually kind of a, not to sound too American, but a bit of a silver lining on what is a very bad situation. If a government begins to take action, change may be possible. Now, that's the good story. Czech Republic and maybe to a certain degree France. The other part of the equation is quite sad because in almost every other EU member country, anti-Semitism has increased over that 10-year period. In the case of some countries, again, looking at just official police statistics, the rates of increase have been above 100%. Even in Germany, the country that, in my opinion, and I'm perhaps a little biased, in my opinion, the Germans take anti-Semitism the most seriously. And so seriously, in fact, that there might be a bit of a reporting bias. But still, even in Germany in 2020, that was the fifth consecutive year of an increased rate of incident of anti-Semitism. So it's certainly growing. There's certainly a need for governments to take an effect. And some countries are beginning to do this, sometimes with encouragement from the EU, which just launched an EU-wide action plan for dealing with anti-Semitism and preserving Jewish life in November of last year. And sometimes these countries are doing it on their own. Even non-EU countries like Norway have these action plans to begin dealing with anti-Semitism. So as bad as things are, there's still some hope on the horizon because policymakers recognize that there's a need to fight anti-Semitism in order to preserve democracy, respect for cultural pluralism, and Jewish community life, at least in Europe today. And I think we're, we're heading there here in the United States as well. And also, I think the politicians in Europe understand, because they've seen it before, where Jews are attacked, it doesn't stop at Jews, it goes on to attack a lot of other people. So I watched, uh, I have two major polls of my work, the Holocaust education, anti-Semitism education, and yes, Germany works really hard, except that Germany is dealing with a migrant population who comes with not an understanding of World War II and what happened, and you know, comes with their own cultural bias against Jews. So these countries have a lot of work cut out for them. They, they do, but the Germans are also aware of this. They, beginning with the most recent major migrant uh, crisis faced with, with migrants coming from countries like Syria several right. years ago, the German government began putting into place all manner of measures to teach cultural norms to incoming migrant populations to, to ensure that 
their standards, which include direct engagement with the reality and legacies of the Holocaust, were taught to new German citizens or would-be German citizens. I think they are taking this very, very seriously. I also want to put a note of caution out there. There's a lot of discussion, especially in continental Europe, on the risks being posed by incoming Muslim migrant populations and how that could lead to more anti-Semitism. There's certainly that risk that's there. There have been cases of violence carried out by some members of those communities, uh, small percentages, of course. But anti-Semitism is not just a Western European problem. It's a problem in Eastern European countries where there are no migrant communities. Now, some of these Eastern Euro and Central European countries like to point to the migrant communities of France or Belgium or the Netherlands as the crux of all the problems. But that's not the case. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, whether you're talking about the right, the left, uh, Christian New extremists, York. Muslim extremists. This is a shared problem. Brooklyn, Brooklyn New York, where it's often coming from uh, the Black community. Right. The only thing that, that unites extremists who carry out attacks against Jewish communities, it's not necessarily their ideologies. It's their irrational hatred of Jews. That is the thing that binds them together. You have, ideal, you have violent, deadly anti-Semitism shared between, I'll take some radical extremes, Hezbollah and neo-Nazis in the, in the south of the United States. Now, these are two organizations that are never going to engage with one another, but they share that violence in common. So I really caution against pinpointing it to one community or one culture because anti-Semitism has so many influences and it's found across so many cultures, societies, politics, nations. It is a shared and ancient hatred that needs to be eradicated root and branch from all of society. Yeah, I'm happy, how, I'm happy you're saying that. I agree with you, yeah. But how do we eradicate? I'm working on a, <laughs> a project I'm planning now about children's project about a thousand years of anti-Semitism. And how do you eradicate where that irrational hate comes from? It's difficult. I mean, you, you, you got to what I think part of the solution or where part of the solution is earlier, Phyllis, and that is calling it out politely when you see it, engaging in civil discourse around this, taking advantage of very few people want to be painted as somebody who's extreme or hateful or not a productive member of society. So have a quiet conversation with people. Most of the time, even if you're not able to change hearts and minds, they'll stop saying things so vocally. Unfortunately, we live in uh, what some are calling a politically desperate age. I don't know if it's just politics. I think it's just the desperate age that we live in where civil discourse is no longer respected, whether it's virtual discourse online or face-to-face -face discourse. But a return to civility, I think, is part of the solution. I think the other part of the solution is honestly, and I spoke a bit about this earlier, making people aware of the benefits and the values found in our diversities, you know, to reintegrate all of our common experiences together. Why does the Holocaust resonate with a kid from Kentucky, from Kentucky or a, uh, a descendant of a survivor or somebody in 
Well, we've, we've had plenty of fellows from, from Western Africa, for example. It's because within the Holocaust, you have a shared experience to a degree. It is one of those foundational moments in our shared international history that can bind us together. The conventions of the United Nations, many of which were framed in the shadow of the Holocaust, continue to resonate today. They tell us that genocide is not acceptable. They tell us that we need to care for refugees and for migrants. They tell us that crimes against civilians are not uh, acceptable and are frankly illegal. These are parts of the foundations of our international community. And in that sense, the Holocaust is one of these transitional moments in human experience, like the French Revolution, that frame who we are today. We need to, re to make people more aware of this. We also need to make people more aware of the fact that our histories are intertwined. It's very common when I'm in parts of Europe today, even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, to hear policymakers call things like the Holocaust Jewish history. I hate using air quotes with my fingers, but they say Jewish history. Well, it's not just Jewish history because it happened there. It's Lithuanian history. It's Croatian history. It's German history. If we don't reconnect these histories, that void is going to be filled by nationalism, by tension, by ethnic divide. It's just going to continue to, this problem is going to continue to repeat itself. We need to bring our histories together. In the United States, we talk a lot about George Washington. We don't mention Heinz Solomon very often. We need to do the same thing here, here too. The Americans are not unique in this respect. Evelyn, it's your turn. Um, how has the fight against anti-Semitism changed in the past decade? I think part of it has, part of the change has been, um, again, something I, I mentioned earlier, a growing awareness that we cannot take for granted our assumption that people know what anti-Semitism is. People are now aware of the various forms of anti-Semitism that exist. Uh, they seem more aware of the fact that anti-Semitism did not disappear in May 1945, but that it continued to plague European history, uh, global history, and it's more of a problem now than ever. I also think the fight against anti-Semitism over the last decade has shifted, not just uh, in Europe, but also in the United States, because it has become a much more obviously violent threat. You have acts of domestic terrorism, whether they're here in Belgium or France or the UK, that are informed by anti-Semitism, even at times when Jewish communities are not the primary target. We also, of course, have the online dynamic that we're dealing with today. Now, it goes beyond just the need and responsibility of social media platforms to clamp down on problematic speech. There is, <laughs> that's been where a lot of the focus lies, but the fact of the matter is we are the ones on our phones all the time. We are the ones using these platforms. And so there seems to be just over the last couple of years, a growing awareness that we as users of social media need to learn how to communicate better against hatred because these extremist groups who are able to radicalize vulnerable populations, whether the economically depressed or the or youth or other groups, people who 
so hate and discord reach these audiences much better than we do. And so that there's a growing awareness there of, of, of what can be done. Um, the other factor that, that seems to be different than it was even two or three years ago is there's a growing awareness in some of the sectors of the, we'll call it the human rights world, that anti-Semitism is a problem. If you look at human rights discourse over the course of the last, I'll be generous and say 30 years, although I think it's, it's even older than that, I think it's closer to 50 years, you know, the fight against anti-Semitism kind of disappeared. It's starting to make its way back in, in human rights fora, including the United Nations. And by reintegrating the fight against anti-Semitism alongside the fight against other forms of hate and bias, I think anti-Semitism stands a better chance of being countered because anti-Semitism does not exist in an, its own self-contained environment. It interacts with and informs and is informed by other types of hatred. So, you know, if, anti, if those of us engaged in the fight against anti-Semitism are doing it side by side with colleagues and partners engaged in similar struggles, I think we can all proceed ahead uh, in a much stronger that way than we have in the past. Unfortunately, still, we also see anti-Semitism coming from the human rights Correct. groups. So, and that's a hard one to, to find. It is. Yeah. So it's, it's like a, a two-way street uh, in a way. It is. I mean, you know, it's one of these challenges and I don't have the solution. Um, you know, if you agree with somebody on 95% of the same things, can you work together? I think in some ways we should, while at the same time trying to educate one another on our perspectives and coming to a shared understanding. But you're right. There are a number of uh, groups who are engaged in a in the same basic struggle, the struggle for a better human experience, who harbor, whether they're aware of it or not, anti-Semitic bias. Um, I have found, going again to something Phyllis said, that polite dialogue goes a long way. Sometimes people just aren't aware of what they don't know. Um, I know I don't know a lot of things too, um, but it's, you know, it's hard to overcome that lack of awareness at times. I would like to ask, we're getting near the end of our time, but do you have some suggestions for resources that are available to combat anti-Semitism? Yes, absolutely. Um, a few, well, going to the um, IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism in, oh, it's more than a year now. It's January of 2021. A few of us worked with the European Commission to publish a handbook on that definition that not only explains how the definition is reads and, and the 11 examples contained therein, but also gives some best practices to policymakers on how to implement it at a governmental level. So that's a very useful resource. Another helpful tool, well, set of tools that exist were published by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, specifically its Office for Democratic Initiatives and Human Rights, ODIHR, O-D-I-H-R. The name of the program is Words into Action. And over, it's still an ongoing program funded principally by the German and US governments. Um, the Words into Action program has published a series of resources for anti-Semitism and fighting it through community security protocols. So, you know, how governments can protect Jewish community institutions from attack. 
through coalition building initiatives. And the one I want to focus on is fighting anti-Semitism through education. That's the one I was most involved with anyway. So that began with a series of policy guidelines, how policymakers and educational ministries can teach about and against anti-Semitism and deal with it in the classroom. But that project also led to the development in cooperation with UNESCO of a series of curricular resources. I, I believe there are 10 I'd have to turn behind me, but I don't want you to see the back of my head to, to count for sure. But 10 um, different curricula on how to teach about anti-Semitism to allow teachers in the classroom to just pick and choose, you know, what they have for their, their particular learning environment to teach students about some of the things I mentioned earlier, about our shared and common experiences, to teach them about the legacies of Jewish community life in whatever environment that you're in. That is a hugely important resource that exists out there to, to you know, begin dealing with anti-Semitism on a practical level. And then finally, for European audiences, really look in detail at the European Union's action plan on, on anti-Semitism. Um, it's a very ambitious, but also very important series of initiatives that include some funding resources for grassroots initiatives to fight anti-Semitism at the local and international levels. So there's a lot out there. Um, I can talk about scholarship, but those are the ones that are easiest to find online. Thank you. Evelyn, do you wanna ask a last question before I give Robert his chance to say his last words? Yes, Robert, we, and we have to be brief, unfortunately, at this point of the interview, but do you have some suggestions for our listeners who are at the grassroots level, who are individuals listening to learn about anti-Semitism and, and to, uh, who, who may be willing to speak up whenever they can, um, do you have something you could suggest to them um, how that could help them um, understand and speaking up against mm. anti-Semitism? Well, there are, I mean, Sometimes it's just overcoming that shyness. But I think the, the biggest thing, especially when you're dealing with small initiatives, those just getting started or those that may not have the most resources, identifying not just funding opportunities, but opportunities to engage in partnership with other causes is very, very important. There is in Europe, I can't remember what the initials stand for, but it's called the ENCATE initiative, E-N-C-A-T-E, which brings together a number of different organ smaller organizations engaged in this common struggle. Work within these consortium structures. One voice is important, but a chorus can be much louder and can bring even more change. You know, but working in partnership and cooperation with others is a hugely important thing that not a lot of organizations are doing, but they could do, and that could help bring about change. The other thing that I encourage all organizations to do is make use of the resources that exist. I just mentioned a few to, to you, but also remember, there are organizations like my home institution, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, that have online quite literally thousands and thousands of pages and millions of archival uh, materials, millions of pages of archival material that are a ready resource for these organizations to use as they create educational programs or outreach initiatives or exhibitions. You know, make use of the work that we've done. We are there for you as a resource. 
and as an individual, what's what can you what can you do? Make get yourself become informed about anti-Semitism and learn how to speak up. It's and, just that simple. And is there a resource you could recommend to them? Well, the start with the IRO working definition, a few of the resources that I've mentioned earlier. Um, I'll put this in as my final word. Another one of the factors behind rising anti-Semitism, in my opinion, is increased disinformation and distortion of the Holocaust. This is a growing problem. There are a set of resources created in part by the IHRA uh, under the heading of the Global Task Force on Holocaust Distortion. Uh, these resources are available through the IRA website and They include a manual on identifying all of the forms of Holocaust distortion that are out there. Get yourself informed about this because this is one of the growing challenges and dealing with distortion can help you deal with anti-Semitism down the road. Now going to the website of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance is yes. a good first step. Very good first step. And the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. We have and a number of resources there too. Thank you. With that, we've come to the end of our time. We thank you so much, Robert, for this really informative session. And we thank our listeners for listening. Please, everyone, if you have not yet seen the compelling documentary that, of Evelyn's called Never Again Is Now, you can see it on uh, Amazon or YouTube. You can learn more about my free Holocaust project at thinedgeofthewedge.com, which has a professional German translation, by the way. And please, everyone, without putting yourself in physical danger, whenever you can speak up, speak up against anti-Semitism and hate.